0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Max Rofaga is founder and CEO of Finimize, one of the world's largest and most engaged finance communities. Max previously founded D-Deal, an online retailer that was acquired by media conglomerate Ringer. In this conversation, we discuss audience growth, monetization, copywriting, hiring for substance, the importance of community, and why Max is driven to increase financial education. I really enjoyed this conversation with Max, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Level, LVL. It's a new crypto investing platform that I'm an investor in, and I'm really excited about these guys. They allow anyone to trade an unlimited number of times per month for only $9. That's right, if you buy or sell with a $500 in Bitcoin on any exchange, you're spending too much on trading fees. So you can use Level to save money and trade as many times as you want, but you only pay $9 a month. It's kind of like your Netflix subscription. You pay a certain amount of money each month on subscription and you get unlimited number of movies and videos. Same thing here, you pay nine bucks a month and you get unlimited trading for no additional cost. $9 a month gets you a level account go to lvl.co slash or click on the link in the description lvl.co slash go get a level account and sign up today lvl.co slash next up is diginex they are the first company with a cryptocurrency exchange to be listed in the United States. That exchange called Equos, EQ, E-Q-U-O-S, Equos, has been built to institutional standards. But it is available to everyone. You can trade Bitcoin and Ethereum Spot as well as Bitcoin Perpetuals, and you'll get a discount on all fees by signing up using Equos.com/slash pop. Again, Diginex has an exchange called Equos. It is the first company with a cryptocurrency exchange to be listed in the United States. Go and check out equos.com slash pomp or click on the link in the description. Equos, E-Q-U-O-S, E-Q-U-O-S.com slash pomp. Go check out equos. Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 85,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Max. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Max here with me. Dude, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks. Awesome to be here. Absolutely. Let's jump right into your background. Uh, this is not the first company, Finemize, that you started. Uh, tell us kind of where you grew up and, uh, and what that first business was.
1: Sure. So uh, I grew up originally in, uh, in Berlin, and I grew up uh, in the sector of Berlin that was American. That's why I have this weird German-American slang uh, or, or, or dialect. And, uh, and basically then studied in the UK, studied uh, in the UK and the US economics and international relations and um, never really had a job. Uh, I've always been in the startup world. Uh, with the exception of one year, I did right out of uni uh, or university, I did one year at a consulting firm uh, for like media sports strategy. And uh, what ended up happening is I tried to uh, recruit one of the partners there to, to start a consulting firm uh, with me and do a spin out, until I realized that actually this is, this is kind of boring. Um, and then I started my first company and, um, that was an e-commerce business and it was a, it was a very random story. Um, so I ended up in, in Zurich in Switzerland out of all places, cause I had a couple of friends who had studied there and, and they were like starting a company. And, um, we originally started off with a kind of Groupon daily deal kind of model. Uh, if you remember those days and, uh, and that was kind of the starting point, uh, that allowed us to get like super high, uh, growth rates. And build up a user base really quickly, and then one day we kind of looked at the data and we're like, "All right, like we've a we've kind of hit a ceiling a little bit uh, in, in, the, in the domestic market, and b uh, the sustainability because the w- with this whole daily deal model, it's all about like the retention and the recurring uh, bookings from from merchants, and that was not super easy. And I think you're kind of seeing that all over the world. And so I think the thing that we did pretty cleverly, if I may say so myself, is we kind of transitioned the entire business into becoming a full on e-commerce business. And so we ended up having our own warehouse. We had like 60 people just working in a warehouse in the end. Um, we took our own inventory and everything. And we essentially built a multi-category e-commerce shop, um, ended up being the largest one. Uh, just Amazon was larger in Switzerland. And uh, we were reaching like 25% of all households uh, in, a, in a small but very, very wealthy country. And then we kind of hit, hit the ceiling again because you kind of like, okay, we have super high brand recognition, more people knew us than British Airways uh, within the country. And so if you haven't shopped with us at that point in time, then you probably just didn't care for what we did and uh, we couldn't really force it. And so then we basically reached this point where we said, okay, you know, it's probably time to, to either... Think about internationalization, or or about a sale, and uh, we spoke to a few um, to a few potential acquirers, and ended up selling it um, to the largest e-commerce. Uh, sorry, to the largest media house, of Switzerland, um, and this was at the end of twenty fifteen, um, and so that was really my first uh, startup uh, founder venture building kind of experience, um, and that then led me to start Finimize. Um, And those are two very, very different companies that I've built. Uh, The e-commerce business was a very mercenary business. So our number one goal was how the hell do we get as much revenue as we possibly can? Um, And I think we then sort of retroactively tried to create like a mission around it. But I think that was one of the learnings and also you can't apply a mission in retrospect. And so with Finimize, it's been the t- complete opposite. It's been, a, uh, it's been a personal experience that led me to start the company. We have a really strong mission, which I'm happy to dive into all that. But uh, that's kind of the story that got me to where I am today.
0: Absolutely. And what was like your one or two biggest takeaways from building that
1: company at such a young age? Yes. So number one was, uh, and I think I see this a lot across the board with a bunch of younger founders, is you totally underestimate the soft factor stuff. So when you're young and you're ambitious, you're like, you know, screw, screw like core values. Like, let's just go, 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 go. And, and then you kind of realize as you mature and as you start recruiting people and you start sort of measuring what's the health of the culture, I think you start appreciating all these soft factors a lot more. And, and, and that's been one of the key learnings that I've taken away. Number one, uh, so that's been actually some, one of the things um, that I, the very first thing before I started Finomize was I wrote our culture manifest. And, uh, and you can find it on our website, finomize.com slash culture. It's public. And uh, again, that during this COVID time, that has been absolutely vital in getting us through this. Um, so that's number one, I think culture and, and, and the importance of soft, soft factors. Number two, I think the importance of scale and then being able to try out new things. So like I said back back there, in, in a fairly small country, we had very large scale, and that allowed us to just try out a bunch of different verticals. So we we sold you anything from from furniture to sports to fashion, all the way to sex toys. Like you, whatever you wanted, you could buy with us. And at the same time, though, we would start verticals, and then we would see this isn't working, and we would shut them down. And we had that ability to do this experimentation because we had that scale, and the scale allowed us to actually get real signal from the market. I think that's number two. And then number three, at the end of the day, I think, uh, obviously, it always comes down to uh, hiring the right people and, and having a, a good business model. But I think the, the first two are the key things that really sort of got in, impressed into, into my mind. I love that. And what is Finomize? So how did you start Finomize, and, and what was kind of the idea for the business? Sure. So like I said, it's been a much more personal experience. Uh, I'll I'll quickly tell you what happened um, to give you a bit of context. So what I did is I was in my mid to late twenties at the time and everybody's like, Hey, you need to start saving up some money, you know, as you approach 30, all that stuff. And so I did that. And what I did is every month I took money from my salary and I just put it onto a savings account. And I did that for a couple of months. And one day I woke up. And I realized, fantastic news, I've built up savings. Then the immediate follow-up question was, what do I do with those savings? And Because uh, I saw you know, interest rates were lower than inflation, et cetera. And so the very first thing that I went to go do is I went to go see a financial advisor. Uh, and what happened was I walked through the door. Uh, there was a lovely lady, uh, very friendly, et cetera. But I noticed she'd already laid out all the brochures onto the table. And I, and I saw that each brochure had their logo on it. And I, and I very quickly realized, okay, this is gonna be a sales pitch for their products rather than them genuinely wanting to help me. And I knew straight away that's not the right solution for me. And so I went back home and I started to inform myself as much as I could on investing and finance and all that stuff uh, online, uh, which frankly wasn't an easy endeavor. And then in the evenings I would meet friends and I was in a fortunate position that a lot of them were working in finance. And I would just bombard them with all the questions that I had about the stuff that I'd learned that day. And then at the same time, I kept bumping into people who were in the same boat as I was. So they were lacking the finance knowledge, but they weren't fortunate enough like I was that they had that community of people around them who could help empower them to make the right investing decisions. And that was the genesis moment for Finimize. Um, where I started to dive in a bit deeper into the whole topic and realized a couple of things. Number one is I certainly wasn't the only one with that experience and with that frustration. So 86% of millennials save each month, but they keep more than half of their savings in cash, just as I was doing, because there isn't a suitable way to get financial advice. And so that begs the question, then, why is that the case? And if you dive into the data, and there's been a bunch of different um, research papers on this, within the millennial demographic, and you know I'm, I'm a millennial, um, 75% roughly, I think 72% say that they want to take direct control over their wealth, but they lack the know-how to doing so. And so it's all around that missing know-how piece. And then if you look at the remaining quarter who do take action, 90% of them, say that they consult their friends and the media before they make a decision. And so it's really with that insight that we've been building Finimize. And so to answer your question in in a very long-winded kind of way, what we're doing is we're building the world's most engaged and largest finance community. And there's really two tenets to that. Number one is, we want to give our members access to best-in-class content from a team of analysts that we've hired. And number two is, we want to give you access to your local and now virtual community so that you can learn from the experiences of other people who've gone through exactly that financial journey that you're about to go. through. Got it. And so let's
0: talk about community first, right? That's kind of like the backbone of what you're trying to build here. Um, talk a little bit about how you've thought about building the community um, and, and then how that kind of plays out in the products and content that you guys are, are putting out in the world.
1: Got it. So... I have to admit that we never really set set out to build a community. It happened very organically on the back of our content. And so, what happened was that we one day. So, so we started off with with a with a newsletter product, um, and since then have have um, sort of launched other products and, and mediums as well. But that was like our, our starting point, and. We would explain to people in three minutes every day, here's the main things that you need to care about in the world of finance, and most importantly, why you should care about it. So why you should care if interest rates go up or go down and how that might affect your person. And then what would happen is uh, one day we're like, hey, let's go meet these people who read our content. And we, we met in, in London in a pub, and as you do, and we were super surprised that, I think like 50 people showed up. And we very quickly, Finamise took over that pub and we thought, Hey, this is pretty cool. A we get to meet all these people and B uh, they get to learn from each other. And so we we did that over and over and over and these things started getting larger and larger and larger. And so in London, we would have meetups of like three, sometimes even 400 people showing up. And then we would start getting emails because we would post it on our social media or, or say it in our newsletter. Um, of people in LA saying, hey, can you do this in LA? Or like people in Sydney being like, can you do this in Sydney? And we said, we'd love to do this because that would be an amazing life to have uh, just to fly around the world and host meetups, but we can't. But why don't you do this in Sydney? And why don't you do this in LA? And, and here's our playbook. And and, uh, and we trust you with the brand and we empower you uh, to to host your own meetup. And that's really what gave birth to our sort of meetup community. And now, you know, last, last year we connected uh, around about 15,000 people in, in, in the physical world at meetups. Literally all over the world. There's not been a single continent where we haven't been. And there's uh, a meetup happening pretty much every single day of the week, somewhere around the world. And it's all completely voluntary, which brings me back to the mission. And this year with virtual, we've completely shifted it. Uh, To virtual, and we've actually this year already doubled, so we've connected more than 30,000 people at our meetups, uh, and that's really driving force uh, for how we think about product, brand, etc. I'm happy to dive into that. Uh, as well. Yeah.
0: And and so when you think of this, how much of it is, I basically have created a playbook or infrastructure, and I'm going to uh, kind of arm the community to interact with each other, right? Like, I'm going to give you the tools, I'm going to give you the playbook, uh, and then you guys go and do it versus you guys are still, uh, maybe not micromanaging, but definitely like, hey, there should be a meetup tomorrow in Dublin. And then the day mm-hmm. after that, we're going to do one in Singapore. And, and you guys are kind of centrally planning
1: yeah. these or something. Yeah, so this is the constant uh, um, sort of swinging along the spectrum of like completely giving up control, and 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 be having a very very tight knit community, and and so what we found works for us, and I think there's examples for either side of the spectrum. We kind of, for us, figured out that sitting in somewhere in the middle works best. So um, we are very strict in terms of who can actually host a meetup. So, like in a quarter, we'll have a couple of thousand applications for people wanting to host a meetup, and we'll take in like maybe 50. Uh, so we, on that part, we're super strict so that we make sure that the that the brand um, is represented well, because what happens otherwise is that people attend these meetups and um, it's a shit experience and it looks bad on Finimize. And so that's obviously our brand is a huge asset, asset that we need to maintain. But then, you know, at the end of the day, we say to them. You you know, we have a very engaged community, for example, in Nigeria, and I have no idea what are the financial topics in Nigeria. And so we depend on them to, to surface the topics that are interesting to the local communities and they get to pick it and they get to organize it, but we basically provide the platform and, uh, and, and the playbook for them.
0: Got it. And as part of this entire um, process, what would you say are the one or two things that you've learned that for those that are trying to figure out how to build community, um, you know, for their business or, or their products, what are those th- things that you're like, if I did this all over again, here's the two things that I would really double down on and, and focus on. And these are my learnings.
1: Yeah. So I think the reason for us why why this worked so well, and, and, and this is a uh, um, manifest manifests itself also when we ask these because of, I always have these friends who like work at top tier banks or like in in private equity funds. And they're like, why the hell does someone host a meetup for you without getting paid and puts all this effort into it? Like, why do they do this? Like, is this fake? Or like, are you paying them? And I'm like, no, it's genuinely these people do this because they believe in the mission. And so having this really strong mission and and our mission is we want to empower people to become their own financial advisors. And that really resonates with our audience. And that's what, what, what draws people in. So I think that's, that's absolutely crucial. Um, and then I think, you know, having that, that, that really balanced approach of giving control, but also having very, very strict guidelines on what can and can't be, do, can be done. I think those are the two main areas that are important. Got it. And then let's talk about how you guys make
0: money. Because I think part of this is like, it's great to have, you know, uh, content, which you guys do. And we'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, it's great to have community which you do. But at some point, you got to make money, but you guys aren't just making money, you guys are doing very, very well. Um, in kind of the finance vertical across a number of countries,
1: how the hell do you guys make money? Good question. Um, so so we have, uh, we're basically building a, a multi revenue stream business. Um, the first revenue stream is pretty straightforward. We have an audience uh, that's highly relevant to a lot of financial brands. And so we do advertising and we let them advertise through native um, advertising in our, primarily in our newsletter, but also our website. Then we have a premium subscription or a premium membership uh, where the end consumer pays. Um, so it's uh, r- around about $60 a year. Uh, and then you get access to a full content library uh, and you get access to premium meetups and a bunch of other things. And then the third piece, which is actually, um, fairly nascent for us. Um, and we never like thought about it until a bunch of people started approaching us is we have an, we have an API business as well. Uh, and so what happens is, um, asset managers, investment platforms, et cetera, they come to us and they say, Hey, we love your content. Can we have it? And, um, Now we can say, yes, you can have it. All you have to do is you have to plug into our API and you can immediately integrate it into your own user experience. And that gives them access to text and audio content, whatever they want um, in order to then increase the engagement with their own user base. So those, those are the three revenue streams that we are pursuing. Got it. Let's
0: start uh, in reverse order. Let's start with the API. Uh, What are they using um, the content for? uh, And then how do you think about pricing that or or getting paid uh, via that API and the the, uh, licensing? Sure. So
1: we basically offer today um, an out of the box solution, uh, which, uh, which lets you either get access to our daily news and insights, or to our weekly news and insights. And then we we give you that either in text or in audio. And so the cheapest version that you can get is weekly text and the most expensive version that you can get is daily audio. And so to give you an example without giving any specific brands, so we had a, we had a um, an investment platform come to us and they said, we have 10 million users, um, two million of them are active. We wanna activate the remaining eight million. And in order to do that, we believe content is the way to doing so. And that was the, the, the pitch point uh, for them. Um, and so that's how that works. It's, it's interesting for us also because obviously a lot of these um, apps and platforms don't have audio. And so they build media players just to integrate our audio, our audio content. And then in terms of pricing, you know, to be totally honest, we're, like I said, it's very nascent. So we're still figuring out what's the right price point for each of them. Um, and uh, currently we're, we're, we're uh, pitching it as a flat fee. But then, obviously, sort of what's normal for licensing business is uh, that you start also having uh, usage-based components in there. But currently, it's very simple. You come to us, you pick what you want, and then you and then you pay an annual license. And then what we're also doing is, if you want to have custom content within that license and within that API, that's also something that we do got it and let's talk about uh, subscriptions
0: and advertising obviously those two are uh, sometimes at odds with each other right I think there's this like debate should you do advertising should you do subscriptions everyone thinks it's a binary world mm. uh, you guys are doing both so mm. maybe talk through just how you think about um, kind of when to put advertising somewhere versus when to go subscription uh, and the pros the pros and cons of that
1: decision yeah so to be totally honest we actually started with uh, with subscription and then kind of move more into advertising because we don't necessarily, so so we actually originally thought exactly what you were saying. So we thought you got to pick one or the other and we picked subscription. Um, but I think, you know, I think the best example of a company that's proven that both can work is the New York Times. I think they've done a phenomenal job in, in building up both and obviously for subscription for them is something that's been, uh, that's really, really been taking off alongside advertising. The way that we think about it is we have a free product and it's super high quality. You know, we have, we, we, we have analysts um, who, who write all the content, so they're expensive. Uh, and we give out that that piece of content in our newsletter for free. And so we monetize that through, through advertising. And for us, there's also a user benefit because we often um, find that users use our advertising, specifically with financial brands, as a discovery product. So they find out about new platforms like Oh, here's an investment platform that lets you invest into art, or here's an investment platform that lets you invest into sneakers and stuff like that, which they normally perhaps wouldn't come across. And so in the premium product, and I think this is where we're different to perhaps uh, uh, a New York Times or any of those guys, in the premium product, we have zero advertising. So once you pay, it removes all of the ads, and that's that's how we separate it. Got it. And
0: when you think about growing the business from here, is this something where you'll continue to invest in all three of these uh, revenue channels, right? So you'll continue to have advertising uh, subscription and also the licensing business? uh, Or do you see the business evolving as you get larger to kind of uh, coalesce
1: around one of those revenue streams? Um, Right now, the plan is that to continue with with all three. Um, So I, th- I we, we, so we have, we've built this internal uh, funnel, I guess. So obviously our, our main aim is to upgrade someone into a subscription. Uh, and if we fail to do that, then we obviously still can monetize our users through advertising. Um, and so we're able to achieve really interesting unit economics that way. And then, like I said, the, the, the licensing business is super interesting um, because it's, it's essentially a pure contribution margin for us. Um, but it's very nascent. Um, and so it's, it's, it's hard to, I would love for it to work, but, uh, but it's, it's early days. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit
0: about new revenue streams. Are there other things that you have looked at that you think are interesting, whether they're physical products or or other types of things that could potentially become part of the business? Uh, Or do you think it's just these three that you'll stick with?
1: So we have a lot of uh, discussion about that with uh, within our board around, you know, I think there's different businesses who have different strategies when it comes to revenues. Uh, some people say focus on one and and, and, and the more revenue streams you add, the less focused you are and that's bad for the business. And then others um, say the opposite. Um, I think for now, we're just going to focus on, on, on those three. And if we were to explore other ones, um, I think there's a bunch of things that we could do. You know, one thing that we could do is go further downstream and actually go into a transaction. So we know that a lot of our users want to take a transaction, so that's an avenue that we could take. Another one is uh, sort of the more classic media play, which is go into merchandise. Uh, that could be that could be is probably a smaller one, but kind of a fun one to do. Um, but to be honest right now, uh, we don 't want to like spread it any more thinly um, one thing that we that we do occasionally do is uh, research uh, so obviously we have a lot of access to people and their uh, investing behaviors and attitudes uh, that 's something that we might explore a little bit further, but again we don 't want to get too distracted with uh, by spreading ourselves too thin
0: absolutely and when you think about um, kind of the team how does your team change based on these various uh, monetization strategies do you have to go and uh kind of hire a completely new team with new skill set or do you continue just to um kind of use the team that you have maybe add some people but uh you you learn the skill as you guys go into the new monetization strategy
1: no so we're we're very lean um and uh we, we we like that and we like being lean um, and so we we have one content team, that content team produces free and that same content team produces premium, same with the licensing. Um, and and I th- I think that's the way it has to be because that's the only way that you can ensure consistency uh, across all the different products. Um, and for us, really, it's all about the quality of the people who we hire who produce the content. That's the number one thing. It doesn't really matter what product they end up working on. Got it.
0: What is the thing that you're most excited about moving forward, given the audience you have in finance? I know that uh, obviously kind of the Robin Hood trader has become uh, the topic du jour of a lot of uh, the mainstream media. But how do you think about uh, the pandemic impacting that audience, that kind of rise of the millennial investor or the Robin Hood investor, uh, and how that will impact the business in the future?
1: Yeah, so, what, so I think what, what's interesting, and I know that you're big into uh, crypto, um, so in 2018, um, we saw a really interesting surge in people actually being interested in finance in general, and I think crypto was a big driver there. Right? Um, then now we're seeing a big surge again in people being interested uh, through this whole sort of Robinhood surge. Um, and so I think what you're seeing is these these drivers or these triggers that lead people to to enter the world of finance, which perhaps typically would have been something that would have been a bit too mystic and a bit too dull for them and, and these triggers allow them to sort of peek into that world. Um, our, our, the way that we are always have positioned ourselves is we are not for the day trader. Uh, we are for people who want to have a sophisticated, more refined, more thoughtful uh, trading strategy or investing strategy. And the way that we describe our uh, sort of persona of a, of a customer is the casual investor. Um, And I think you're starting to get many, many more casual investors as a result of all the things that are happening. Um, And what, what a casual investor is is someone who wants to actively invest because they don't just want to be passive, completely passive, they might be partially passive, but they also don't want to be a day trader. And so these are the kind of people who might spend a couple of hours a week on investing, not every single day. And that's really who we are catering the product for.
0: Got it. One of the things that you said previously is like the importance of copywriting. So the way that you communicate with uh, your customer or your audience, talk a little bit about what you mean, uh, why that is such an important skill set.
1: Yeah. So I think copywriting is one of the most overlooked skill sets uh, that you can have. And people really just take it for granted. Um, and I think for us, sort of taking a step back, the sort of secret sauce that, that we have or that we like to think we have is We manage to synthesize two things that are typically not synthesized very easily or very well. On the one side is we we take substance. So that's why we hire ex-analysts who really, really know what they're talking about. And on the other side, uh, we have simplicity. And that's why we hire copywriters. And so typically what you have is you have people with substance who produce these really complicated convoluted reports that nobody really understands. And on the other side, you have people who produce pretty shallow, but very easy to understand uh, financial content, but it's so shallow that it actually doesn't really add any value to you. And so what we really focus on is combining those two things. Um, And so copy, I think for us, is the crucial piece that grabs someone's attention. And the way that we think about that is, and we've always been picturing this user is, imagine someone standing at the subway station it's loud they have their their headphones plugged in they're reading what you're what you've been writing and they probably have 50 percent of their attention span is with you and as soon as they have to reread a sentence we've lost them and so we need to be able to write in a way that a conveys the substance but b has a nice flow is conversational etc and i think that's one of those things that's way easier said than done and is a real craft Um, And you you see that both on the actual content side, but also, you know, more recently, we have started doing paid acquisition for the first time, really. And that's a big, big driver. At the end of the day, paid acquisition is all about how good is your copy and your ad creative. And so hugely important skill set.
0: Have you seen an impact on the cost of acquisition uh, by simply changing the ad copy, but kind of same target, same audience, uh, same platform?
1: I mean, I'm a firm believer that the, the people who win in paid acquisition are the people who win with ad creatives. I mean, that's also the way that we've been structuring our own organization is as much testing as you can do with ad creatives. And typically what we find is the copy in our experience, the copy is more important even than the visual. Uh, so again, copy is everything.
0: Absolutely. Makes uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, you've hired tons of analysts, but not journalists. Explain that decision.
1: Yeah. So um like I said, we really, really focus on, on the substance part. Uh, and you know, when we started with our newsletter product, uh, we've always been answering three questions for our users. Number one is, what's going on here? Number two is, what does this mean? And number three, why should you care? And the why should you care question, what we found, is not something that a financial journalist, and, and I don't mean to offend anybody out there, that, uh, in our experience, is not something that they are able to answer very well because they don't have that deep understanding that someone from the industry has. And so when we did the hiring, you know, we, um, we interviewed a range of candidates from the, with journalism background because that's kind of the obvious that profile that you want to hire for someone. And we just figured or we just found that the quality of the insights that they provide just isn't strong enough. And so that's then what, what, you know, ended up uh, leading us to the analysts. And so we've hired people, um, you know, we more well, most recent hire as someone who was at Goldman Sachs for 10 years. Um, and uh, we only hire analysts right now. We have one exception uh, and, and he kind of sits at the intersection of uh, product and content. And he um, was a managing editor at Bloomberg for 10 years. Um, so he's the one exception that we've made. But other than that, we've always hired analysts because the insights that they provide is what we're really looking after.
0: Absolutely. Do you think that other media
1: companies could benefit from kind
0: of taking a similar strategy of, of almost hiring people who um, are either one have skin in the game. So actually the investors themselves uh, or the uh, kind of analysts who have spent years and years um, kind of more focused on analysis rather than just
1: journalism. I, I mean, I think it really depends on what, what the publication wants to do. Um, are so when we define internally what we care about is we care all about providing insights and so in order to provide insights you need people to understand it and that's what led us there if if your thing is hey i just want to have breaking news and i want to be the first one to break that i don't think you necessarily need that you probably actually or if you want to have investigative pieces you probably want to have a journalist because that's their skill set but i think as soon as you start really digging into something and and providing those insights i think it's, it makes a lot of sense to me Absolutely. What, what's the biggest
0: challenge for you guys moving forward?
1: Good question. Um, we always have a bunch of challenges that we're thinking about. Um, I think for us, it's, uh, it's all about um, when we think about what we're doing is we, we essentially are creating a new kind of product category, um, a, a product where people are paying to get financial insights. There, there isn't really a product out there that exists yet. Um, similar to what maybe like a, a Headspace and a Calm did in the meditation space, You know, getting people into this space where they're paying for meditation was something new, was, was category defining. And we believe that we are doing something similar in the financial news analysis insights uh, space. And so the challenge that that brings is you're constantly having to educate the market on what you're doing why this is worth paying for, uh, why you can't Google this. Um, so it's, I think it's all about customer and market education and development. That's really what we're focusing on. Got it. And then
0: for you personally, like we talked a little bit about what you've learned in your first company. What have you learned in this company so far that other founders could uh, could benefit from hearing?
1: I think... I applied the thing that I learned from my previous company with the culture um, manifest and and defining that early on. Uh, I think that's been an absolute winner. um, And I would definitely do that again. Um, So really focusing on on getting the soft factors and the soft values, right? Uh, I think importance of brand, um, again, is something that's super crucial. And that's something that you just build up every single day by providing value to your end users. And then I think, uh, monetization Uh, so when we started out um, we had a very different business plan uh, in in, in place and I would probably next time um, I I guess try to put a little bit more emphasis on the business plan from day one rather than building great product that you're proud of and building a good brand because you need both and I think we kind of um, did a lot of experimentation and figured it out along the way Um, which maybe that's the natural way to do it and I know a lot of companies have done it but uh, it's probably easier if you, if you really nail that from day one.
0: Got it. Before I wrap up, I always ask everyone the same two questions and then you'll get a chance to ask me one. The first is what's the most important book that you've ever read?
1: Uh, That's a good question. Um, the most important, I mean, I guess, I guess I'll give you two answers. One is, uh, sort of on the, on the business side, um, I love reading business books. Uh, so I love stuff like Shoe Dog, um, and I, I love stuff like, um, uh, I, I just read Michael Ovitz's uh, autobiography, which was, which was super entertaining and, and really interesting. But I think in terms of the book that I really love, uh, because I think it's a, it's a really interesting perspective on life, it's uh, the Little Prince um, from Saint Exupéry. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, I have been. What, why that one? It's a. Uh, it's I guess it's uh, it's a, it's, a, so it's a French book from uh, from a French author, uh, the Little Prince. It's a very simple book. It's it's sort of intended to be for for children, um, but. It's an adult book with really, really important life lessons, if you sort of uncover it a little bit and go a little bit below the surface. And it just you know, gives you lessons and, and perspectives on you know what matters in life, uh, what matters with relationships, what matters with love, all, all the stuff that I think in our world of business and finance, you kind of lose. And I think that book does is, is just a re- really refreshing read to sort of open your mind again. I love that answer
0: second question is more fun aliens are you a believer or a non-believer
1: uh i'm not a bel- i'm not a believer today but i'm open to being convinced so i'm not categorically against it what, why not a believer yet i guess uh i haven't really seen any any uh indication of it um i know that there's you know that you always read these studies that are coming out um from different planets but I don't know, I probably believe in ghosts more than I believe in aliens. Uh but yeah. Why well, believe in ghosts? I'm you're like
0: different. the third you're like the third person ever to say that. Why do you believe
1: in ghosts? Uh I don't think I believe in ghosts per se, but I I think I probably believe in ghosts a little bit more than I believe in aliens just because sometimes things happen and you're there's isn't really a good explanation for it and you're kind of in this um, old historic place or something like that. And you're like, Oh, I guess it could, could have been a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What's the one question you got for me to, uh, to wrap us up? Uh, I actually have a quick one. Number okay. one is, uh, so the, so my favorite part of your podcast is when you open up and you say, bang, bang, what's the, what's the background there? Uh, literally there is none. I just did it one day and then I was
0: like, I'm gonna do it again. And then uh, about the third time, uh, I was like, well, I probably can't stop now. Like yeah. in a couple We're hundred episodes together. later, like just
1: bang, bang, what's up? <laughs> yeah. well, I love that. That's uh, the energy tone, right? And then the second question is, so Bitcoin on a rise, where do you think it's going to go this time? I think we see 100K
0: by the end of next year for sure. Really? Wow. The end of 2021. Um, you know. How much higher than that? I have no clue. Could it not go to a hundred? Absolutely. Like I, I kind of just think of it as um the the thesis is there. Like there's a fixed supply, demand's only going to continue to increase over time. Uh, how long does that take? What are the price targets? All that is debatable. But like, you know, it's gonna be worth more, you know, 10 years from now than it is today, type thing,
1: right? And, and you think uh, last time we hit this sort of 18K mark, then afterwards it all sort of dribbling down again. You're convinced, that, uh, or you're bullish, it's not going to happen this time. Oh no,
0: I, I think that we get another kind of parabolic run. Let's say you know, I don't know, say 100K, right, or, or whatever the number ends up being, mm-hmm. um, and then from there you get uh, a pretty nasty like 80% drawdown again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of you know, if you if you put a gun to my head and said, uh, what do I think is going to happen? hundred K or more by the end of next year. Uh, And then after that kind of blow off top, you'll then get a a pretty nasty drawdown, Um, you know, know, 80% probably somewhere in that range. Uh, Then you'll go through a multi-year kind of bear market like we did uh, already. And then you'll basically, um, you know, kind of get another parabolic run again. So it's, uh, you know, over the last 11 years, this game has been played, right. Um, And it's kind of done this a, a, a number of times, uh, I tend to think that, uh, you know, this is no different. We're just in the next cycle of it. Yeah. Awesome. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, Max, thank you so much for doing this. Where can we send people to find you on the internet or find out more about Finimize?
1: Sure. So uh, you can find me personally on Twitter. Uh, I have a bizarre Twitter handle, which is whole earth web, uh, which is a whole story to it, but whole earth. Well, web, You're, you're going to have to tell us what the story is. Um, so I was, uh, when I really got in, so I was like one of those kids in in, in in school, I was like the first kid in my high school to have a website. So I've always been really into the web. And I kind of went down this really sort of rabbit hole uh, for a year or something, uh, understanding where the World Wide Web came from. Uh, and, I, and I found out about the whole Earth catalog uh, from Stuart Brand. And I bought one and everything and I looked at that. And then I was like, oh, I guess... You know, those guys who were sort of the hippies of that generation, they actually helped create the World Wide Web. So I thought I was going to be smart and just combine the terms Whole Earth Catalog with web, which led me to Whole Earth Web. Uh, and now I have to stick with it.
0: And, and you've uh, been using that as, uh, as kind of the, uh, the name on the Internet since?
1: Yeah, you know, I kind of stuck. I, I, one day I signed up for Twitter and like ever since I've been having it, I kind of like it. It's not great for like personal recognition, but I'll stick with it. I love it. Uh, and, all right, uh, so they can find you there on, on uh,
0: Twitter. And then what about Finimize?
1: For so Finimize, uh, you can find us uh, on, on, on Twitter, just Finimize. You can go to our website, finimize.com, F-I-N-I-M-I-Z-E, Instagram, social media, et cetera, and in um, all the app stores, so uh, Apple and Android. I love it, man. You're
0: uh, you're a legend. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. And uh, obviously, you've built a very, very large engaged audience uh, and community uh, and are figuring out how to kind of in a win-win way monetize it. So thank you so much for coming on. And we'll definitely have to do this again in the future.
1: Thank you. Awesome.